This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. What is marriage? That's a very culturally relevant question today, isn't it? Well, I can't think of anything that's on the top shelf in our culture today than this question. Until just a few years ago, let me give my phone to somebody. Gail, come get my phone. I forgot, I never bring it in here, and I haven't turned it down, and I don't want to be that guy. But people know not to call me between 9 and noon on Sunday, you know, most people. Culturally relevant marriage. Um, until a few years ago, just a, few year, just a very few years ago, there was one accepted definition in culture for marriage, and that was the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. That's how everybody viewed marriage. And that's how it's defined in our church's statement of beliefs. And today we are finishing up for our guests. We're finishing up a series where we're going through the things that we believe as a church. And this is the last on the list of our beliefs. It's interesting that it's last because we never realized that it should be something that we should include until 2004. We said, you know what? The times, they are changing. And let's put down on paper and sink our, our, our stakes down into what God says about marriage because we believed 13 years ago that one of those days these things were going to change in our society. So today, as we finish our Believe It series, I want to lay the biblical foundation for that belief. We live in a time when the ancient and holy estate of matrimony is no longer viewed with the same level of commitment as in generations past. It's unlikely that any of our families, any family, all the families represented here, maybe I can say it this way, have been touched in one way or another by divorce, by the breakup of marriage and the tragedy of infidelity. A number of years ago, I found, I just kind of looked through, this has been probably 10, 12 years ago, I just looked through our church's our church's role, of who our, our church's partners were. And I said, you know what? We have about a third of our congregation have been through divorce at one time or another uh, in their lives. And, and that was good for me to know because it tells me that we are a good mixture of who's in this society. And, that's, and, and, and everybody is welcome here. I remember one time somebody said, we didn't think you let divorced people come to your church. And so where did you get that nonsense, you know? So it's a big, huge issue, and it has been a number uh, for, for really generations, but it's picking up speed. Healthy lifetime of commitment in marriage is not easy. There's a lot of brokenness in people's lives due to the failure of marriage. But I, I want to tell you, if you've been through divorce, and maybe you are divorced, I have been, uh, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Can I say that again? Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Sin And the church is to welcome those who have been through the tragedy of a broken marriage. The church is to be a place of healing. And at the same time, the church has a responsibility to do all that it can to build and to promote healthy marriages and to do all that it can, church, to discourage divorce within the church. We live in a time when 
in our society, in our culture, when standards of morality have been replaced with the need for, quote, unquote, and I put quotes, big quotes around this word, because those who have been screaming for it for all these years are now the most opposite of it, for the need of tolerance in our culture. Those who live lifestyles, but those who live lifestyles formally considered immoral. Pornography is now free. Pornography is now accessible to anybody who has one of those phones I just handed to my wife. That includes your eight-year-old, nine-year-old son. Pornography is free on the internet to all who want to look at it, free and accessible, and is the major cause of violence, porn. The major cause of abuse, the major cause of the breakdown of marriages in America is pornography. It's stunning to read, and I've read some things here lately, how porn in the hands of adolescent and even pre-adolescent boys coming to them through their cell phones, apparently, without notice by their parents. Come on, mom and dad. How the influx of porn coming to these kids, these boys, is destroying their understanding of sex, is destroying their understanding of how they are to treat women and is perverting their understanding of what God's gift of sex is all about. Sex, and it's not just boys, by the way. It's girls as well. Sex is openly and unashamedly peddled on virtually every television network. If you turn on the TV after 7.30 at night, you don't know what you're going to see. It's now become an epidemic among adolescent and millennial girls and women, this thing of pornography, and it's destroying their minds and their potential to have healthy, intimate relationships. And studies are showing right now, we talk a lot about the millennial generation. Studies are showing us that the millennial generation is more consumed with porn than all the rest of us combined. At Nagsad Church, we believe the Bible speaks to these issues and the standards and answers it gives are to be believed and upheld if we as a church are to be the light and salt this world needs. So as I said in 2004, we added our statement on marriage and family to our church statement of faith because we saw marriage on the virtue, on, on the verge of being redefined and marriage is being destroyed at an alarming rate. So I wanna share six things this morning with you about God's design for marriage. All right, six things the Bible tells us very quickly. Number one, God created sex. I was telling one of our greeters at the door, I said, please ask parents, don't bring kids in here today. We have the most wonderful children's ministry in all the earth, upstairs and downstairs. And you don't want your young children in here. We did that a number of weeks ago. I did a message and I said, well, I don't want any young children here. And sure enough, somebody came and thought, well, my, it's okay for my little kids to sit with me and be with me in church. And right in the mid, I hadn't gone two paragraphs into my sermon when that daddy jumped up and grabbed his kids and went out when he realized what I was talking about. So I told our greeter at the door, I said, I'm going to say the sex word a bunch of times today. Number one, God created it. That means it's what? Okay. God created this earth and he says it's good. And God created sex and he said it's good. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man and woman 
in his own image, and he created him, man, in the image of God, and he created them, male and female. Why? He blessed them, and God said to them, here's why I've given male and female. I want you to go, and I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth, and then I want you to subdue it. So, first of all, this morning, sex is not a dirty word. I'm not going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and say sex is okay, because it might, not be, a, it might be a stranger, so please don't do that. <laughs> don't want to cause anybody to stumble here today. But we, what we, here's what we've done. We've allowed the entertainment industry, and we've allowed, allowed our penchant for celebrity worship to make it something it was not created to be. Good example of that corruption is the so popular among young females books and movies about Fifty Shades of Grey, about abusive, wrong sexual relationships. Sex was created by God to be a gift that when used according to his will is a very beautiful thing. And outside of God's boundaries, God sets boundaries for us in our lives and outside of his boundaries, Sex becomes perverted, ugly, and too often abusive. Should be a normal part of our lives. You read, go to the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. It's a book about sex. It's a book about a man's love for his wife. And they get kind of, in Old Testament language, kind of graphic about some things in that book. It's a graphic love story of the beauty and intimacy God created and intended for sex. Number two, God created sex to be between a man and a woman. There are several ways that our culture, just recently, I just kind of ran through these in my mind. I didn't go look these up anywhere. I just said, what are some ways that culture in the last five, ten years has attempted to and in some ways been successful at redefining and changing what God created sex to be? Here's how culture has done that. First of all, by refusing to accept the Bible as the word of God. By saying, well, you know, this was written so long ago. It's thousands of years old and and." We've progressed beyond that point. Please hear me. This is God's perfect, inerrant, infallible, listen, eternal word. It can't be replaced. It can't be updated. It can't be, we have no right to say, well, we're going to take parts of it out because we don't like what it says. If it's God's word, then it becomes it bears his authority. So if we don't like what it says, we don't like what it says, we don't, we don't care about what it says, you know, that really doesn't matter. Secondly, when the authority of God's word is removed, then we become the authority. If we take the authority away from God, then who gets to be the boss? We do. We get to be then the authority. So now we determine what's right and wrong, not God, because we've already decided that these things really don't apply anymore. Then the third thing is that allows us to accept or reject Scripture as we please. There's a lot of things in here that people, oh, that, that really don't want to hear what I'm saying today. We'll get the Bible out and say, yeah, but you know what? This is so sweet. This is so it. This is so right. Jesus said some things, and people want to quote Jesus all the time as being tolerant of everything that we can imagine in this world. So we reject or accept Scripture as we please. I found it amazing a couple of years ago when I heard the argument made that Jesus never addressed the issue of, of marriage between, being between male and female. People say, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. 
So, really, how about these words here of Jesus? He said, haven't you read it? That he who created them in the beginning, he's quoting from what we just read in Genesis. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them how? Male and female. And for this reason, Jesus said, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. It's interesting that the word wife is the same as the word woman in the Greek language that the Bible, New Testament, was written in. His words are very specific, weren't they, in defining marriage. Male and female, man and wife, become one flesh. And his reference there to one flesh was the design of the Creator. This is how God designed it. So the next step is, if we accept or reject Scripture as we please, and the next step is that we begin to shame Bible believers as bigots. You, you Bible bangers, you're just bigots because you say this is what God says. You say this is God's design. Therefore, you are discriminating against us. You hate us. You're prejudiced against us. It's gone a long way in just the past five years or so. So much, for the, so, much so that, that former Bible believers and churches and church leaders are now backtracking and attempting to explain away Scripture because you know why? Nobody wants to be considered a bigot. Nobody wants to be called, I don't want to be called a bigot. Nobody wants to be considered a bigot. So if that's what I am now, then some are saying, let's backtrack and let's find ways to explain away the word of God. That means that whenever we change God's design to suit ourselves, whether it be with gay marriage, whether it be with polygamy, that's next coming down the line. Or doing away with marriage completely? Why do we have it at all? Whenever we change God's design, we step out of God's plan for humanity. Number three, God created sex for marriage only. You want to talk about an unpopular thing to say this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm not winning any popularity contests today, all right? You know what? I'm just telling, as, as one of my pastors used to say often, he said, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just the delivery boy today. God's plan is for sex to be for marriage only. Sexual intimacy is a union between a man and a woman and joins them together as, what did Jesus say? One flesh. God never intended for a man and a woman to be one without the covenant and commitment of marriage. By the way, the union is not only a physical one. It's a spiritual union. That's why the Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's a spiritual union, a physical union. It's an emotional union as well. And Hebrews chapter 13, 4 tells us to give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. It says God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. What does God and his word define as immoral in this regard? Well, outside of marriage, God's word has two, God, God's word, the Bible has two words for, for sex outside of marriage. And both are found in the verse we just read. One is the word, English word, fornication or immorality, which means any sex outside of the marriage relationship, whether it's premarital or extramarital, outside of the marriage relationship. 
And it's included in several lists of sins that God finds particularly offensive. And I've given you a list of those scripture references there in your notes. Why is that important? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13 down through verse 20, the Apostle Paul teaches something to us here about our bodies, about our physical bodies. And it's in that passage where the Apostle Paul says, don't you know that your body, Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's the holy place of God on this earth. It's not a building. It's your body that's where the Holy Spirit resides. You are his temple. And he goes on in that passage to say, so, and this is what was happening in Corinth. He says, and so you guys, listen, if you go and join yourself together with a prostitute, and it was happening all over Corinth, you've become one with her. You've taken the temple of God and polluted it, if you will, desecrated it, if you will. Marriage only. It's interesting that Corinthian culture that was absolutely, it was known for its promiscuity. In fact, one of the slang words in their culture in Greek, in Greek culture in those days for having illicit sex, especially with a prostitute, the word that they used was to Corinthianize. We have all kinds of other words, and I won't repeat them what they are, but theirs was to Corinthianize. They accepted promiscuity. Like our country today, they could say, but everybody's doing it, as though that justified their moral looseness. Paul goes on to make it plain that premarital sex in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, the first five verses, he makes it really plain. Premarital sex is to, to be avoided. He says, listen, guys, Best thing for you to do, and if you want to practice what I just said in the end of chapter 6 about your bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, he said, don't touch a woman. That sex is appropriate only between husband and wife, he teaches. And you can also see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. What is also really insightful is that the Greek word for fornication... I find this amazing, is the Greek word pornos. Guess what word comes from pornos? You don't have to be a rocket science to figure that one out. And that's the Greek word for immorality. That's the Greek word for fornication. The other word in that verse was adultery. Adultery is the act of being unfaithful to your spouse by being involved with another. Now, not too many years ago, another meant another person, male or female. But let me add today, with what we've already said this morning, that another doesn't have to be a physical person. It could be digital, it could be visual, it could be cyber. So when people talk about, well, we, all we had was an emotional affair, is that adultery? If it wasn't adultery, why did they say affair? See what I'm saying? Because we hook together, we link up emotionally, doesn't mean it's not adultery. Why is that? Because my spouse is the only person on this earth who can legitimately lay claim to that kind of relationship. 
The only woman in this world that I need to have any kind of emotional relationship with is that lady seated over there that I gave my phone to. That's my wife. She's the only one that can claim that. And I, should, I have no business whatsoever doing anything different. Anything else is cheating. And perhaps, again, the most destructive en en enemy to marriage today is porn. Marriage, what is it supposed to be? We sang it here just a little bit ago. I don't know if you picked up on what we were singing, how it's going to relate to the message. But it talked about like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be a church ready for you. Now, that was the Eastern way of practicing marriage. The Western way, the groom stands up front and waits for the bride. In the Eastern world, and in the time the Scriptures was written, uh, it was the opposite. The bride waited for the groom to appear. He was the star of the marriage. I think we need to change things back to that. And there were a lot, and I, can't, I don't have time to go into all the reasons for that, but there are very solid, legitimate reasons that you ladies would be grateful for. Marriage is a picture of the relationship Christ has with his body. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that talks about Christ loves his bride, and he loves his bride, the church, so much that he gave himself for her, and he longs to present his church to himself as a chaste virgin without spot, without wrinkle. He loves the church. And refers, the Bible refers to any Christian who loves the world more than Christ as someone in James chapter 4, verse 4, who has committed, listen to the words that James says, committed spiritual adultery to anything that we love more than we love Jesus. The biblical commands against adultery begin in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, 14. <clears throat> Continue in the law that God gave to Israel, Leviticus chapter 20, 10, and then throughout the New Testament. Proverbs 6, verse, verse 32. What a great verse. It's, it's really simple. It's, he just tells it like it is. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Can, can I paraphrase that? Can, would you allow me to do that? Whoever cheats on his wife is really, really stupid. That's what that says. Lacks understanding. Is a moron. Dumb, dumb. He who does, who, he who does so destroys, listen, not just his marriage, he destroys his own soul. Adultery and love, therefore, cannot coexist, and love is the foundation for a healthy, committed marriage. Number four, God created marriage in the family. We can define marriage as, as this covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Now listen, that is recognized by God and by civil authorities, by both. By the way, the government is in place because of God. Why does the government get involved? And I guess Romans chapter 13, verse 1 tells us we have government because God instituted. He knew we needed that kind of structure and protection, justice, and so forth. Marriage, therefore, is not just a piece of paper. It pronounces the relationship as legitimate. Cohabitation, then, without marriage is wrong in the eyes of God does not equal the establishment of a family. 
And some will ask, you know, just like, well, Jesus never said anything about it. Well, were Adam and Eve married? Were Adam and Eve married? Let's look at Genesis. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2 in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles there in your chairs, under the blue chairs. Genesis chapter 2, did Adam and Eve, did they get married? Now, they didn't have, they didn't have an organ playing, here comes the bride. Eve wasn't wearing this flowing, white, beautiful wedding gown because she was naked as a jaybird. <laughs> George, who said amen? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's just get it out. Guys, say amen. amen. If you didn't say amen, guy, let me talk to you afterwards, all right? <laughs> I love you guys. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Did you know, you know this, that women have one more rib than we do, man? Then the Lord made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. I think there's everything that's necessary to create a human being in the bone marrow. He took a rib, and, with the, and you say, how could he do that? Okay, well, how did he make a man out of the dust of the earth? I don't, okay? What, which one was harder? <laughs> I think the rib was probably easier. He took the rib and that he had taken from the man and he made that into a woman and he brought her to the man. And so the questions being asked there in the Garden of Eden, by the way, she didn't have a bouquet. She had all the flowers, the most beautiful flowers in the world surrounding her. Brought her to the man, and, and if anybody asks a question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? God looked around and said, it's just me here, it's me. I do. And the man said, Adam spoke up and he said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Did they get married? In, in the most beautiful, you know, I've been to a number of weddings in the Elizabethan Gardens in, in uh, Maniova, Roanoke Island. Beautiful spot for a wedding. Does it get any more gorgeous than that? Adam and Eve's was prettier. Adam and Eve's was in the Garden of Eden. Yes, they had a marriage, a wedding. God put them together and he pronounced them one and he recognized their relationship and he gave them the command to procreate. And marriage and family are God-ordained institutions and since he Hear, hear me, get this. You might jot this down. Since he created them, he alone has the right to set the guidelines for them. Can I say that again? It's his deal. He makes the rules. Number five, God designed marriage to be a lifetime commitment. No one who gets married. Gail and I helped Gail with a wedding last night in Nags Head. And what a beautiful wedding it was. And the bride was so pretty. And, and the groom was so giddy as he saw her coming down the aisle. And... And, and, and it was just gorgeous. And, I, and if I could have pulled that couple aside and said, hey, how long do you think it's going to last? How long do you think this will last? 
Nobody getting married thinks it's ever going to end, do you? That's why you make those vows, and that's why you say as part of that vow, until death parts us. Because we believe marriage, if anything else, to be a lifetime commitment. I've never heard a couple follow that vow with, until death parts us, maybe. If it all goes well. As long as we find out we're compatible. Gail and I made a promise to each other before we said our vows to one another. We prom- before, before we ever were married on that, on that Saturday evening in June, we, we made a promise to each other and to God that divorce would never be an option for us. Never. And she, and she came from a broken home. She personally witnessed as a teenager and a college student the pain that came to her parents as their marriage unraveled. And so we made that commitment to one another over 40 years ago. Well, how in the world have you stuck with it? How have you kept to it? And I know some of you are thinking, well, look, Rick, look at you, man. (laughs) I, I mean that in a positive way, you know? Why would she ever let you go? And all the men said, amen. <laughs> How have you stuck to it? How, do y'all, y'all ever fight? <laughs> y'all ever have disagreements? Have you ever done anything stupid, Rick? Well, can I tell you about my day yesterday? <laughs> How has it lasted? One word. One word. And I know you're thinking, oh, I know what that one word's going to be. That one word is this, Christ. Because we entered into this relationship, both being believers in Jesus Christ, both having, having been transformed by his grace, both brought together, we believe, we said it to each other in our marriage vows, by the will of God. He has been, I've not been constant in this relationship. I've been faithful, but I've not been always nice. I've not always been agreeable. I've not always been easy to deal with. I've not always been constant. Nor has she. She will tell you the same thing. But you know who is always constant, who never changes, who remains the same? Christ. And he has been at the center of our relationship. We haven't always turned to him when we should. We haven't always acknowledged him when we should, but we've always known that he would never leave us or abandon abandon us. We're both flawed, but he's the tie that binds our hearts together. Because marriage is a picture of the union of Christ and the church, which can never be separated, God's ideal for marriage is that it lasts a lifetime. But the reality is, here's the reality. Let's just get down to the nitty-gritty. We live in an imperfect world, don't we? And when two people get married, those are two imperfect people coming together. But even though no couple starts out wanting their marriage to break up, it happens. But Christian, hear me, because marriage, as we sang, pictures his relationship with us, and because he designed it to be a lifetime commitment, 
The Bible even tells us in Malachi 2, verse 16, that God hates divorce. Doesn't hate the divorced, but he does not like it when marriages break up. And for those of us who know Christ, our marriages are a witness and a testimony to the world of the power of our faith to overcome our weaknesses. Jesus spoke of divorce in such a way that it was plain he disapproved of it, Matthew 5, Mark 10. And the question has to come up, I won't deal at length with this, but what if a Christian's married to a non-Christian? What happens then? Well, Paul plainly wrote that Christians married to unbelievers in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. He said, you do not divorce that unbeliever. Just because you become a Christian doesn't give you, well, now I belong to Jesus and you don't, so we're done. No, 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 no. He, didn't, he said, no, no, you don't, you don't do that. But he also said, if the unbelieving spouse says now that you're a Christian, I want nothing to do with you, and pursues a divorce, then he says to the believer, don't stop it. In God's design, the lifetime of a marriage ends with the physical death of a spouse. And then 1 Corinthians 7, 39 says this, if that happens to you, it says very plainly, you're free to marry again. Why? Because it's not good to be alone. You're free. In the Lord, he said, marry in the Lord. What does that mean, Christian? If you're going to find an, uh, a new spouse, find a new Christian spouse. Number six, God provides forgiveness and healing. God's word is some straightforward things to say about all these issues and much more. I could do a whole series on what we're covering today. And his standards remain the same, and stepping outside of his boundaries that he has established always brings hurt, it always brings shame. It often brings lifetime scars. But he's also a God of amazing grace. And if you violated any of these standards, please hear, if you miss anything else today, please get this. He offers forgiveness. He offers grace. In John 8, the story is written of a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. She was maybe caught by her husband. We don't know. But the law of the land, the law of the Jews demanded, the law of the Old Testament says she should be executed for that. And so those who opposed Jesus brought her to him, not because they wanted to see her executed, they wanted to tr trick him up. They wanted to see if he's going to violate the Roman law. They wanted to see what he was going to do. You're going to, which one are you going to choose, Jesus? Because they wanted to nail him either way. She was guilty. Everybody knew it. And yet Jesus, what did he do? He offered her grace and forgiveness, didn't he? Got down and he wrote some things in the sand and who, who knows what he might have written. But then when he looked up and he had said, now who, he who's without sin, you pick up the first stone and let her have it. And all those who brought her to him dissipated, the crowd left. And he looked at this, this woman who no doubt was in tears fearing for her life. He said, well, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all left. And he said, I'm not going to condemn you either. He offered her grace and forgiveness, but that forgiveness, please hear me, that forgiveness is not to be taken lightly. He didn't say, now I'm going to forgive you and you're free to go back to however you, it is that you were living. 
He said to her very simply, he said, I'm going to forgive you and you have my grace and get up and now go and do what? Sin no more. What was he saying? You got that lifestyle that you lived up until right now, it's over because I've given you my grace and I've given you my forgiveness. Don't abuse it. First Corinthians chapter six says to those who commit sexual sins. Listen to what Paul wrote to that Corinthian church that was so eaten up with this thing. He says to them, after listing a bunch of sins, including sexual sins, he said, and such were some of you, you English scholars, tell me what tense the word were is in. Past tense. You used to be this way. That's how you used to live. Such were some of you, but you were washed. How are we washed? By the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. You were sanctified. How are we sanctified? The Holy Spirit comes and lives within you when you accept Jesus as Savior and begins to make you like Christ, begins to make you holy, which is the same word as sanctified. You were washed. That's happened. You were sanctified. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And you were justified. You were pronounced by the judge God Almighty in heaven, not guilty because all of your sin that you ever committed was placed on Jesus on the cross. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Those Corinthians, hear me. Those Corinthians were told that God has the power to not only forgive, but to also change us and to make us new and put the past behind us. God loves to forgive. God extends his grace. God makes new. What's been scarred, what's been battered, what's been beaten, what's been ruined, what's been soiled, God makes new. Would you bow with me in prayer? And Lord, if that's today the need of someone's heart and someone's life right now, I pray they'll discover that grace and that forgiveness. Thank you that in your word, you've made it very plain. You've given us the, um, you've given us the, the freedom to live as you created us to live. You've also given us the boundaries so that we don't make a mess, not only of our lives, but the life of someone else. For the man here today, Lord, that's being beaten down and battered with pornography, I pray, God, that today would be that day of deliverance. And that today will be the day he, she maybe, takes the right steps to come clean before you. In Jesus' name I pray. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.